I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche It's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Just by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science Then let them in talk up their body Another one body, that's just how it go I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so this Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am not your host, PTF He's running around somewhere in Europe uh, He's in the UK, I think I, th- I think that's where Cheltenham is. I don't know. Is that in the UK? They had a big pick six today. Anyways, he's at Cheltenham. Uh, he, he wore an American flag tie. What a troll that gentleman is. Anyways, um, uh, I'm not PTF. I'm Jonathan Kinchin. And uh, I'm really excited about this week's episode. Uh, I got my man Dale Romans. And I've had some outstanding times with Dale. We, we talk about the first time we met, which was in an airport. Um... And uh, I was went up to him as a fan, and, and, and we ended up hanging out, which was cool as hell for me at that time. And then um, I've got to have dinner with him. I've got to go to freaking minor league wrestling with him. We, we've, we've, we've hung out, and every time it's a blast. And uh, we got him for an hour here, and it's a ton of fun, bunch of stories, great insight, and uh, I couldn't be happier to spend the time uh, with Dale. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. And I promise you, I'm guessing, I'm guaranteeing, I'm guaranteeing, you're going to feel a little unsatisfied when it's all said and done. It's not long enough (laughs) for the fun that we are having. But what I will promise you is that we will do part two this summer, Saratoga. Maybe we'll set up the cameras outside of his barn, uh, get a couple of cigars, and I'll let him go again. And uh, we'll go a little bit longer that time around. So I uh, want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing uh, for uh, believing in this podcast, supporting this podcast, and, and being an outstanding partner. Um, it, it's, it, it's, been, it's been so much fun to be back at it. And the, the, the response we've gotten from all of the, the listeners has been outstanding. So thank you all for listening. Make sure you share. Make sure you retweet. Make sure you like, comment, all that fun stuff. But uh, let's just get to it. This one's way too fun of a conversation. My friend, Dale Romans. Dale Romans, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, buddy? I'm good. I've, I've been excited about this one. I, I was fortunate enough to go. Uh, I went to dinner with you and Tammy in Saratoga, went to Salibo, and you were just telling amazing stories the entire time. And so I, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, for for quite some time. Well, that was back when I was drinking, so it might not be as good today. <laughs> you're you're still off the sauce, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, I slip up every once in a while, but I'm trying hard. It's a tough demon to beat, you know. I hear you still. I remember on Car Talk, you said you were, you replaced it with cigars. Yeah, and I had one a few minutes ago. I came in the house, Tammy, and made me throw it out. So, <laughs> yeah, she doesn't like that. She doesn't like any bad habit I have, and I got too many of them to count. Dale, um, you know, I, I normally reach out to people that, I'm, that are close to the person I'm talking to because they can set me up for some good stories. I got to say that your daughter, Bailey, came through with a million things to, uh, for me to set you up to talk about. So uh, this, should, this should be uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, well, that, that's not a good sign because her and I don't always mesh on the stories that should be told. But uh, 
<laughs> you know, the first thing I thought we ought to talk about is the first time we ever met. Okay. Yeah, that's you a good rem- one. You remember, remember when that was? I do. I do remember. Where were we? We were at the uh, Albany Airport. <laughs> yes, we were waiting on a delayed plane. Yeah, to Chicago. I think it was Million Weekend. Yes. And you had you must have had someone run. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember either. It might have been little Mike Fury won. It could have been. When did he win? 14? Uh, no, that was 12, I think. Oh, okay. No, it would have been it would have been after that. But I don't know. I think I've told you this before. I don't know if you remember, but when we were sitting there, Robbie Alvarado called you and he was talking to you about not this time and telling you that that he hadn't sat on a horse like that since Curlin. Oh and yeah. I remember I remember I called uh, I called my buddy in Vegas and got a got a not this time future as, as quickly as I possibly could. Well you would have you would have cut you would have cashed that thing if he hadn't gotten hurt in the Breeders' Cup, that's for sure. But what I remember we were sitting there eating stale pizza, waiting on that plane. We we're both aggravated. And uh, to, I, I hate to be brutally honest, but I didn't know who you were back then. Oh cool. But uh, but he came sat down with me. I said, This is my kind of guy in a flower shirt and some wild air. We're gonna hang out together. Yeah, it was uh, it was like 2000. It had to be because my first time going to Saratoga was 2015, so it had to be around then. And, yeah. And and I never uh, and I yeah, I mean I hadn't been on TV or anything yet, so I just remember that I think my the way I broke the ice was our mutual friend John Nichols. Oh yeah, that's our good friend. That uh, big John's my buddy. He's been my buddy for a long time, and I think that was it. Once you said his name. And the way your your parents came across me and you were good, we sat there and ate some stale pizza together. It's funny. Uh, I, I actually messaged John Nichols this morning because the picture that I'm going to post, I always put a, pic- a picture of who I'm having this, this conversation with. The picture I'm going to post of you is when you were holding that championship belt from that night we went to uh, wrestling in Kentucky. Yeah, that's pretty good. Hey, that was a fun night. And our, our buddy down there that owns that wrestling operation – I've been harassing him a little bit because there's a couple of guys in there need managing. So don't be surprised when we come back next spring that I'm going to come out as their wrestling manager. <laughs> that is going to be really good. Um, it's, it's time for me to get into that uh, that type of atmosphere. I think you, you know, need to be on. I think you need to be on TV. Yeah, one of the highlights I've had in my life is Jerry Lawler, the King Jerry Lawler, put me in a headlock on Bill Street one night when we were out drinking in Memphis. And uh, I don't think we need to get into the whole story today, but that that's the way the evening ended. Oh, man. Um, you know, it's a funny story because it wasn't just me and Jerry Lawler. It was an odd eclectic group. The other guy with us was the uh, – uh, what's his name? Belding from from Full House or not Full House? Uh, oh, uh, the the principal from Saved by the Bell. Saved by the Bell. It was me and the principal Belding and Saved by the Bell and Jerry Lawler, and and we'd all been drinking. And uh, the principal Belding, I don't remember. I don't know his real name. Well, that's I just called him Principal Belding the whole time. I told him, you know, you were a little hard on Zach all the time. He, 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 we were so messy. He said, "Hey, hey, don't get mad at me. That was the producers." <laughs> Didn't you? Didn't you almost do a reality show? Did I hear that? Is is that was true? And we've shot a bunch of reality uh, sizzle reels, they call them, over the years. And yeah, there's there's and there's a couple in progress now. So who knows? One of these days, it might happen. I might be up there with the Kardashians. 
One of my favorites is uh, it was that movie the Hennigan Brothers did the first Saturday of May when uh, when you and your son Jake and Jake had that big wad and Pletcher was giving him a hard time. That was I love that documentary. That you know the Hennigan Brothers did a heck of a show, and if anybody wants to, to it, it may be the best racehorse movie ever made. I mean, there's a, there's a big argument for uh, Let It Ride. It's between one of the two, but anybody hadn't seen it, I'll go back and see it. Those guys, not about me. It's a, it's just a good show about horse racing and tells people what to look forward to in horse racing. No, and that, they, they they did a great job. They followed Barbaro, um, and they, they you know they followed you around, and and uh, and I guess at that point you knew Jake was going to be hooked to the racetrack, and and he's he still he couldn't get away from it, huh? There was no shot of getting him out of the races. He was about 14 or 15, and he was gambling all the time. And I'd always put a limit on what he could gamble with. And Tammy would get mad at me. I said, damn, Tammy, the best way to get him out of gambling is to let him gamble because he'll figure out he can't win. So one day he came, comes home, and it's the last day at Churchill Downs, and I had a horse in. I like the first-time starter. He said, Dad, please, just let me play, play whatever I want today. I said, go ahead, go ahead. You can blow it off. He came home that night with $50,000 when he was 15 years old, and it's been downhill from there. Oh, my gosh. You, you said he was 14 or 15. Um, you, When you were 14, you and your brother ran your dad's barn at Ellis? We did. They, they, there was a, my dad was leading trainer in 1980, 1981, I think 1982 at Ellis Park. And uh, he had a factory job. Back then, there were a lot of trainers that had to have second careers and and they probably are today i mean i don't run into him like i used to but he was uh he was well educated very smart man he worked in a, a factory in, in louisville as a supervisor and he would take and my mother were divorced and he took my brother and i first year i think we were 13 or 14 he got us a hotel room he said you guys run the barn if your mom calls back then there weren't any cell phones or anything so we had to go to pay for and talk to her they tell her i'm back in the hotel room and he went back to Louisville and left us and uh, had a groom picking us up every, every morning and dropping us off, paid her a little bit extra. And uh, they wrote a big article, The Phantom Trainer Strikes Again. We set a record and won 24 races that first year. We were down there, the two of us. My brother galloped them all, and I ran the barn. Oh, my gosh. She, she also set me up with, a, with one that I've never heard you tell, uh, where your uncle or her uncle, so your brother – rode a race for your father and then your mom and then tammy rode a race for you yeah that was a pretty good story that that goes later in life though but you know tammy's father was a trainer a jockey and her brother was a very good jockey billy and we had to do a little backstory in that because billy and i were really good friends early on and he he went off to ride in new york and he told tammy she should come into kentucky try to pick up some of his business so little Tammy, four foot six, walks into my barn. This was said a long time ago. We've been together forever. Stuck her little hand out. She said, I'm Tammy Fox. I'm here to be a jockey. I said, hey, Tammy Fox, nice to meet you. Sit on my couch here and let me finish up work. You're mine for the rest of our lives. And it took me, took me about three or four months to convince her that it was the right thing to do. <laughs> but, but she went for it. And then, uh, so you fast forward. Now Billy's in town. I'm, I'm. He's, he's back in town. He's riding everything for my father and she's riding for her father. And I'm probably just still assistant trainer for mine. I might add a few horses of my own. And, uh, they drove up to Turfway park together to ride all four of them. I stayed at home and, uh, T 
Sammy beats Billy ahead right on the wire. And they put up the inquiry and disqualified Tammy and her dad and put Billy, her brother, and my father up. And then they all had to ride home together that night. Now, oh, that's pretty God. good stuff. I'm glad I wasn't involved or in the car because I'm sure it was it was hectic. Oh, my gosh. I, it, it would have to have been. Uh, you know, talking to you, and just even when we, you know, just the times we've hung out, it's, you know, you can really tell that you love it. And it's not just something that you do. It's it's who you are. And the stories you tell, the, the, it's it's just a life on the racetrack provides so many different opportunities for wild stuff to happen. It does. And there's so many great people and great things. And I think the thing that I love about your business more than anything, and you probably feel the same way, is I get to be around greatness every day. It's either meeting someone I should have never met in my life or the greatness of the athletes that I get to see every day and get to hang out with. And anytime that you're in an industry where you can hang out with greatness, there can't be anything better. I mean, whether it's Andy Serling, which I think is great at what he does, or you as my friend, I consider a good friend, or the horses that we deal with, the jockeys that have been good to me over the years. Pat Day is one of my greatest mentors in the game. That every day I get to go to work, and there's a good chance I'm going to run into someone who is great. Uh, you know, it's, it's like probably picking which one of your kids is, is your favorite. Which one of your horses – Maybe not the best horse you ever trained, but just which one of your horses was kind of your favorite horse that you always, that you, that, you know, just you always think of when you think of your, you know. Well, when, they ask, you when they ask me that, I mean, I could, I, it's easy to say shock for little Mike, uh, not this time, Kittens Joy, Rose and May. Those are the, those are the ones people are expecting, but I'll go back to our Pat Rooney. Our Pat Rooney is a horse I claimed for 3,500 when I was 15 years old. And I worked hard on him every day, and my I, my dad let me keep him in the barn with me, and I rubbed four horses in our Pat Rooney. So one day my dad comes into the barn, and he, he's looking at the four of his that I'm grooming, and none of them have bandages on. Their stalls are clean. They're nice and fed. And he goes to our Pat Rooney. He's got four white bandages on, uh, uh, spider bandages over his knees. He'd been in the turbulator all afternoon taking care of his legs, and he just shook his head, and he just walked away. Did they did they take him from you? Our Pat Rooney got claimed for me three times, and I claimed him back all three times. And I'll tell you, he was a horse back then. He had an ankle that was so big, it was on his registration papers. He must have been war born with it, because on his description, it said, enlarged left white ankle. And he just became my pet and one of my favorite horses of all time. And then you could go to Miss Mindy. Miss Mindy, when I was 18, I guess, 18, 19, I bought her for $1,500 from a lady named Grace Wright. And she said she would only sell her to me because she liked me. And she had a little chip in her knee after I trained on her a little while. And I didn't have much money, had any money, really. And a guy told me, he said, there's a little young vet up at Ohio State. If you take it up there and give him 800 cash, he'll take that chip out for you. So I put her on the trailer and I drove her up there myself and I took her off the van. He took the chip off. I gave him the 800. I brought her back. And, uh, Gave her 90 days off, started training on her. And uh, I couldn't, didn't have enough money really to, to pay anybody to help me. 
And so this little girl started working for my dad. She was 18 years old, Laura Hernan. And I said, Laura, if you get on my horse every day, you want to be a jockey. I'm going to let you ride her if you want, but you got to help me get her there. And she loved it. So she's working for my dad and she's getting on Miss Mindy every day. And Miss Mindy starts getting better and better and better. And uh, we work out of the gate with a couple of solid horses and she, she worked in 59. I talked back then, you could talk to the clock. I said, Hey, let's make that 102 if you want to. And that's what he did. And we're coming up time to run her. Laura had never ridden a race or never won a race. And I'd never won a race as a trainer. It's the first horse I was going to run as a trainer. And my dad and his owners and a couple of guys said, don't, don't ride Laura. We'll pay her. Put somebody else on it. We'll all bet on Miss Mindy the first time out, made in 3,500 at Turfway Park. And I said, it's the greatest decision I've ever made in my life. And it taught me a lot going forward. I said, a deal is a deal. Laura's going to ride. Nobody has to bet. If you don't want to bet, don't bet. So we enter Charles one oh February 15th, 1986 or 7, 87, I think. And I called my mother. I said, Mom, you drive up here to Turfway, hour and a half from Louisville. She was working at the time. I said, I want you to watch me win my first race. So she came up and uh we were in the paddock and we leave the paddock and my mom says, okay, she opens her purse up and she said, here's $2. Go, go bet it to win. And she had just gotten paid and cashed her paycheck. I don't remember how much actual money was there. I grabbed everything out of her wallet, ran to the window and plunged. I said, bet it all. And she won by seven, paid $17. And, uh, so Miss Mindy is special in my mind, but the, the moral of the story is fast forward to today, Laura Hernan that rode the horse that day. It was her first win. It was my first win as a trainer. And it was the vet's first horse he had operated on that ever came back and won a race. And that veterinarian is a world renowned Larry Bramlich to this day. Oh, wow. So Laura today runs my life. Laura went on to get it to quit riding after she didn't ride for very long. She had a baby. She went back to school, got a degree in accounting, came back and has run my business to this day. No one gets between me and Laura. She handles everything financial in Roman's racing stable, everything, all my interviews, except for guys like you that are my friends that call anything that I do has to go through Laura. And I hate to think what my life would have been like if I had reneged on the deal that we had made. Wow. It happens a lot too. I mean, it make. I mean, you know, in those situations, it would have been nothing it, it, for you to to make the change, especially just getting started. You know, no, it would have been nothing to snatch off. But a deal's a deal, and and you don't realize those things till you get older in life. But when you're a kid, you're thinking about the moment. But it's probably the biggest and best decision I've ever made in my life. To this day, she's still my very best friend and the closest pertinent person I work with. And, uh, I deal with her on a daily basis. And not only she worked for me now doing the accounting and books with Suge McGahee, Chad Brown, and a lot of other people. But she was telling me the other day when she was talking to Chad, she said, Chad, ask her something about me, which Chad's a good friend of mine. She, she said, she just told Chad till death do us part. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, whatever happened uh, to that horse? Well, we end up winning the next start, nine winners of two for 7,500, and I ran her back nine winners of three for 10. 
They claimed her. The knee started bothering her from what I heard, and she never ran again. But I ended up with like 25,000. It's a good story, too. I had like 25,000 in my account, and I was 18, 19 years old. And I had to go get the money. And then I was driving back to Louisville from Cincinnati. I didn't have enough money to get gas to get home. I had to cash that check. So I cashed the check. And uh, I remember I had a little girlfriend back at the time. And I drove back to Louisville. And I just walked into the apartment. I took all the money. I just threw it up in the air and made it rain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Did you, do you miss the, do you miss the, the, I mean, I know you still might drop one here and there, but do you miss the claiming situation or are you glad you kind of don't have to mess with that anymore? No, I love claiming and I'm getting back into it, believe it or not. I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's more fun. There's so much stress involved with trying to develop a horse to, to get to the Kentucky Derby. You know, I've got a couple of clients and, and the only success is if you get me to the Derby, that's too much stress. But the way the money has come around in Kentucky, especially in the claiming and, and the, the restructuring of the claiming system where they check them after the fact. And if they're not hurt, you get them. If they're hurt, you got the other person gets them. I'm getting back into the claiming game. I think I claimed four last year and they all did well. And uh, don't be surprised if you don't see me jump in. I might plunge and make it rain in the claiming industry this year in Kentucky. Yeah, I mean, look, if you can grab one, and, and, and I feel like there's so many, because people's expectations are so high, like you mentioned, you got a client who, if you don't win the derby, like, what are you doing? There's a lot of horses, still like useful, talented horses that end up in those spots because they just can't be those stakes types that everybody's looking for. It is, and it's a lot of fun. The only thing about claiming that I didn't, I never liked, I don't want to lose a horse and somebody make me look bad, but I'd also hated claiming a horse and make somebody else look bad. Everybody out there are my friends, but that's part of the game. It, but it is fun to just try to figure out what you can do different, make a little change here or there, get a young a horse in your barn and try to improve it. And it, it, and like I said, we've done, I think four or five, I did four or five last year and uh, it was a lot of fun. And this year I think we're going to try to blow it out a little bit. Can you think of any like unique claiming changes that you made where like, you know, you just something silly, like where you just, you, you claimed a horse and you decided this horse needed this. And it was just like something bizarre, not, you know, not claiming and moving them to the grass, but like something you know, kind of just wild that you, that you pulled off that, that worked successfully. Well, I'll tell you one that back when I was working with my father, there was a horse named Limousine. And uh, Limousine was, he claimed him, I don't remember what the price was, but he, he was running in a citation bit which is a bit that where if they go too fast, it cuts their air off. And they got famous because they supposedly always gallop citation in it. When he would start pulling too hard, it would, it would squeeze his nostrils or whatever and cut his air off where he would have to slow down. And they were running him in this citation bit because it was a runoff in the race. And uh, this was really my dad. It wasn't me, but it taught me a lot. He claimed horse. He was sprinting three quarters, running a citation bit, trying to restrain him. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a D bit on him, which is the most mild bit, and we're going to run him a mile. And the first time he ran him back, he ran one of the fastest miles of the meet at Churchill Downs because he just let him roll. And what that did, that taught me to just quit fighting with them. If you can't beat them, join them and do what they like to do and maximize what their potential is and what they want to do. You know, it's funny you, you mentioned that because you, you taught me that lesson 
before we knew each other, you taught me that lesson with Shackelford. And I remember you were the first person that I ever heard say that if you're going fast up front, all the closers are probably going faster than they want to go. I, they want to go too. That, that's true. And that, that takes me back to Roses and May in Dubai. Rose and May drew the 12 hole on the outside, which was a perfect spot in Dubai. And we're going a mile and a quarter. And we're having a meeting with, with, uh, with John Velasquez, me and Ken Ramsey. And we're all sitting over there. And of course, I'm so broke, I can't pay attention at the time. And 360000 more money than I ever expected to have in my life. And uh, if we win, and Ken's telling Johnny, just we want to go to the front and then just try to slow it down and ease it up. And I'm sitting there thinking, the one thing that we have that they don't is stamina. And I said, Johnny, forget that. I want you to go to the front and go as fast as you can and go all the way. And they will not be able to keep up because they will get tired. And what you did when we went to the lead, we pulled everyone else's race ahead. So they're all going faster than they want to go to try to keep up with him. And if you go back and watch that race, you'll see Choctaw Nation runs up like he's going to blow by him and just runs into a wall to 16th pole. And he hits the wire, and uh, it uh, it worked out. And, and that's when I figured out, and it helped me. It helped me it real that lesson probably really helped me manage Shackelford because Rose and May had speed and stamina. You give me those two things in a racehorse, and we're going to own the world. And Shackelford came along later, and I'd already learned that lesson. And as a handicapper, I'm sure after that you've watched and seen that that plays true a whole lot of times. Oh, it's, 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 it's led me to so many, um, leans on horses that I think a lot of people would kind of lean away from. Like, I don't give a damn how many speed horses are in a horse with a horse like Nick's go. I was always going to take Nick's go because, you know, I know he's going to have to work to get to the front, but he's working. They're all working with him, And, and it, it's that whole speed of the speed idea that I, that, you know, Shackleford was one of the first horses that I kind of remembered developing that, that, uh, that idea with. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, a, it'll, it'll play true more times than not. If you are the true speed of a race pack with speed and you get to the lead, the rest of them are in trouble. Now it'll fail every once in a while. It, it, you know, it did, it failed with me on uh, the one time I can remember it was promises fulfilled in the Florida Derby. I thought he was the speed of all speed, but I didn't know there was a speed horse in there that was going to make us go 44. And then we all collapsed in front of him. But that's the rare occasion. It, it has paid. It has worked well for me over the years. If I have a horse, I know has the stamina and the speed. Just get and go. But one of the things that I realized about that about that point, though, is that yes, occasionally it doesn't work. But what I've learned is the times that it doesn't work it wasn't going to work the other way either. Neither it wasn't going to, it was, so you, you might as well do what you do rather than try to do what you don't because either way you're losing. Either way you're going to lose. hundred percent right. hundred percent yeah. right. And it will work more times than not. If you have a special horse, little Mike was another example that we go to the, you know, little Mike was a, as a, I know we're going to jump around here a little bit, but it'll all, all tie right. together in the end. Little Mike, we went to the Arlington million to run a mile and a quarter and everybody said I was crazy, but I thought we were controlling speed in that race and pace makes a race. And I thought everyone would think that he can't get the mile and a quarter and they would let him gallop along on the lead. And, and Joe Bravo thought I was so crazy. He stayed in 
Saratoga to ride a horse for Todd and Ramon Dominguez picked up the mount. And of course we got out there on a lead. He was simply galloping along for the first half a quarter mile. And then it became a mile race from there and they're not going to beat him. And that, that's what worked out and, and won Arlington million. And it was a race that I've always wanted on my resume from the time that uh, John Henry and the Bart hit the wire together when I was just a kid. I said, this, this has got to be the greatest race in history uh, outside the Kentucky Derby. And little Mike went on to win. So then we, 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 we move on to the next step is go to the Breeders' Cup. Well, we're planning on running the Breeders' Cup mile all along. And about a week out, I start looking and handicapping and start thinking, I don't see any way we can beat Wise Dan. You're not going to outfoot him and beat him. You're not going to get to the lead and steal the race in a mile race with, uh, with the greatest milers in the world. And I called Carlo and I said, Carlo, I think we should consider going in a mile and a half. And, and he said, go ahead, do it if you think we need to do it. So up until the day before entries, I was going in a mile. And uh, so we decided to go ahead and run in the Breeders' Cup turf at a mile and a half. I put him in there and I got the handicapping. And, and Joe was actually mad at me. He thought I should have taken Ramon off and put him back on. And I wasn't taking Ramon off of anything after he'd won the the Arlington million. I think Ramon's one of the greatest of all times. And, uh, so I get to look and I said, Joe's on a speed horse. He ain't going to let us go to the front and be in front. And there was another speed horse in the race. So we get in the paddock and I talked to Ramon. I said, Ramon, we made a, a, a change of strategies here. I want you to lay third. He said, third, nobody this horse has always been in front. I said, I don't care. We can't get in front of these two horses and win. We can get in front of them but we can't get in front and win lay third, but sit there like you're on the lead and just kind of gal plunk, pretend they're not there. Cause I believe you get to the eighth pole, a quarter pole, they will collapse. You will inherit the lead and you just got to ride your ass off from Nate's pole home. And if you go back and watch that race, it's the greatest performance any jockey has ever put on a horse in the history of horse racing. And it, and it laid out exactly like we talked about. He sits third all the way around and just galloping. He inherits the lead around the quarter pole. And at the eighth pole, he just rolled his ass off home. And Shug's horse comes running from behind and just can't catch us. And one of the best races I've ever seen a horse run or a rider ride. Now, <clears throat> on this topic of speed, and I just, I'm, you know, this is going to be a, this is a tricky one for you, but I, I, I think I know what you're going to say. Do you feel like if American Pharaoh would have been ridden more aggressively in the Travers, do you think your job with Keen Ice would have been more complicated or do you think Keen Ice was winning no matter what? That, that's a very complicated issue. That, that whole thing goes back four races before. You know, I beat, we beat Keen Ice in the Travers. Or we beat American Pharaoh in the Travers with Keen Ice. But he had beat us like three or four times before. Nobody talks about that. I haven't talked publicly about this much, but I'll say this. When we ran into Haskell the time before, America Farrell won geared down. But we came running from the clouds, and we went past him galloping out. And I'm standing there watching the gallop out, and it didn't look like he grabbed a bit and tried to run with us. And it put in my mind, I keep thinking, that he's a tired horse 
because normally he wouldn't let us get past him, even galloping out. So we move on to Saratoga and Bob's a good friend. We've talked a little bit and I shouldn't put words in his mouth, but I felt talking like Bob did not want to come to the drivers that he felt like American Feral needed a little more time. And then they shipped him in and the day, do you remember the day before the race, they let people come and watch him train. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there, there was probably 10,000 people there that day. And they're all cheering when he came out and he went way too fast the day before galloping around there. I thought, and I thought he looked a little light in the race and we were walking over for the, for the race. And it, it, that, that was, that might've been the most spectacular thing I've ever been involved in. But back up a little bit to the day of the draw of, of entries in the draw, we go to the draw downtown Saratoga and anytime they give an open bar and a microphone can be a problem for me. <laughs> but the, the CEO of Naira had limited the number of, number of people i don't remember what the number was fifty thousand ninety thousand whatever it was they could come to the race because so many people were wanting to come and at the draw they they draw the numbers and they, andy has us come up and talk and i said all i want to do is is uh thank the ceo for limiting the number of people that are going to boo me saturday <laughs> and uh <clears throat> and walking over i mean believe me American Farrell is one of the greatest horses to ever live. And I just watched him work his first work ever in Ocala with Ahmed Zayat. We always hang out to stand every year. We'd go up there and we'd watch Ahmed, all his horses work. It would be me and Bill Mott and Baffert and Asmussen and every once in a while, various different people that would show up to train for him. And I thought that's the most spectacular two-year-old I've ever seen the first time he worked down on lane. And I haven't bet a horse in 20 years. I bet a hundred on him first time he ever ran. He got beat that day too. But uh, that's why I don't gamble. <laughs> but so much, I, 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 much respect for American Farrell. He was the greatest horse that year. And we're walking over, though, and there's, there's people. like It's almost like the walkover where we're walking is canopied with people. They're hanging on each other's shoulders and standing on the fence and, and watching us all come through. And, but I just felt it that day. I told my son Jacob, I said, Jake, today we got him. And to back up just a little bit, I was supposed to be all alone that day. Tammy had something going on. Bailey, my daughter, was was at school. At, had just gotten back to school at Dayton, and Jake wasn't going to be there. Jake calls me the first week. He said, I think I'm just going to drive up for the race. I think he was 16 years old. I said, come on up, and I'd like to have somebody with me. He drives up. And then Bailey, it just worked out that, Mick Cronin was flying up on his jet that from Cincinnati, the head coach of University of UCLA now that was head coach of Cincinnati at the time with his family. And Mick said, I'll put your daughter on the plane with me. We'll bring her up. Well, that's going to be great. And I, I was I always speak the night before Travers at a wine tasting for uh, senior citizens meals on wheels. And uh, I was there up on the stage and Tammy walks up. She didn't tell me out of the blue she got in the car and drove up to come up so all four of us ended up there that that day and uh so we're walking over to jake I, I think we got him today i really do and and back up even further the week before mike Luzzi's coming off the layoff he had been hurt and he wanted some horses to work i said well, why don't you come work my coat for the for the Travers and he worked him as beautifully he could. And I knuckle, I said, knuckle down on him. Let him, let him run. He worked in 59 and 
Mike, Mike's coming off the racetrack and said, the champ's got his hands full. He said, you might beat him. And Leroy Jolly, which was one of my childhood heroes growing up, had, had two horses left. And I gave him two saws in my barn. And so for the last few years of his life, and we would hang out every day, and he would train his couple of horses, and I trained mine. And Leroy standing with me watching the horse work, and he said, you just won the Travers. Now, there, here's, in my mind, is a genius of horse racing and a lifelong childhood hero. And he's telling me, I've just won the Travers. He said, because you knuckled down on him. Everybody's afraid to train their horses going in these races anymore. You made him do the right thing. So now we're walking in and all these people are there and we saddle and I always watch races live. My father told me a long time ago, I was, it was really cold at Turfway Park and I'm watching races and, and, uh, I watch it on TV when I was like 16 years old and I call him up and I said, I couldn't see what happened early. I was watching on TV. We were in the back. He said, you can't take a minute and a half and stand outside and watch a race live. You can only watch them live one time. You can watch replays the rest of your life. So the rest of my life, I've watched every race, 99.9% of my races live. And then I'll watch them on TV, but it was so crowded that day. I couldn't watch it live. So we go into the racing office from the paddock. I couldn't get from the paddock to the, to out front and find a place to watch the race. So we go into the racing office and it's all four of us, me and Tammy, Jake and Bailey, and we're standing there watching and Yes, we got helped a lot by Frosted and the setup and pressuring. And here he comes. He was a locomotive. He wasn't a Ferrari. He would just keep grinding and grinding and grinding. And he blew past Farrell and hit the wire. And I grabbed Tammy. Anybody out there doesn't know, she weighs 90 pounds. And I was 350 pounds, way too fat. I grabbed her and picked her up, and we took off running. And I got it halfway there and realized I was too fat and old to be carrying 90 pounds and running to the winter circle. <laughs> and I couldn't breathe when I got there. And Janine was standing there with ESPN and she had some tears in her eyes. And I, I guess I ended up with tears in my eyes too. I couldn't, I said, she starts to interview me. I couldn't breathe hardly. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> and it's not, it may look like it's all excitement, which it probably would have been, but it was from carrying Tammy up. 400 yards and running through the crowd with uh with her on my hip and we get down i told janine after the thing i said don't ever do that to me again i mean she was a good friend and she was happy for us and i walked i didn't go to the trophy presentation i didn't go to the to the interviews i walked back with keen ice and the blanket of roses or whatever, whatever the flowers are they've got on there throwing them into the crowd and it was unbelievable how the crowd was cheering my horse. And I thought, this is really cool about horse racing. As much as American Pharaoh's American horse and everyone wanted him to win, they respected the performance of Keen Ice today. And I was throwing the flowers up into the stands. But I get back to the barn, and who's waiting for me at the end of my barn was Leroy Jolly. And he walks up and gives me a big hug. And he says, welcome to the Trainers Travers Club. And that, I mean, I've got several highlights in my career, in my life and things that I never would have thought it would have happened, but that is one of them that's at the very top. What'd you do that night? Well, it's funny that night. I will, I, I'll tell any young trainer out there. It's not a good idea. If you win the Travers to put the 
blanket of flowers around you and walk down Broadway. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's, that happened. And I must have taken 500 pictures, I don't know, 1,000 pictures with people in my blanket and my beers and my bourbon and everything I used to do back then and the family with me. And then we ended up at the Donnacle House and we had a big party and it was a great time. And here's another great story, though, is uh, one of Bill Clinton's best friends owned a little piece of Mark Weiner, owned a little piece of, of uh, Keen Ice. And after winning the race, they give you a, a Longine watch, nice watch. I don't know what it's worth, probably a whole lot. And it, Tammy was going back the next day, and I handed it to Tammy, and I said, take this to Baltimore and tell him thank you for all his efforts and his work. And Baltimore is my lifelong assistant that we met when we were 19, and he's with me to this day. And I said, I want him to have the watch. And uh, she took it back. But Mark Werner, which was Bill Clinton's good friend, heard that. And he's on a film with Clinton. And he takes his watch off. And he said, the president told me to give you this. He'll get you and get me another one. And it was a watch that Bill Clinton had made when he was president. He had 10 Shinola watches made with his presidential seal and the United States presidential seal on them and handed that to me. So I think that was a pretty good trade for Lee John. He, he told Clinton what I had given the watch to Baltimore, and he said, give him your watch. And I've got that's one of my most prized possessions today. Wow. That's uh, yeah, you got to keep that one in the safe, don't you? Yeah, you should, I guess, but it's, <laughs> it's in the house for me once it's still at nobody's home. But it's uh, yeah, that, things like that just happen. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an example. If you try to keep doing the right things along the way, good things happen to you. It's 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 shocking, not shocking to me. I mean, but it's it's pretty darn cool that you've had the same assistant that long. As much as we see them switching and changing, no, you know he, he is, and he's a quiet guy. He's from a Mexican immigrant. He's a, a true American story, and uh, I mean, we think on the same page. I think sometimes we communicate without talking, and he's been with that. But I got grooms and hot walkers with me over twenty years. It's a, it's a big family affair. It's what we do. And we all hang out together and we party together. We celebrate together. We mourn together. And, uh, I mean, I've got at least four grooms over there. Been with me 20 years. I got Hawk walkers been with me almost 20 and, uh, it's a big, big family affair. I think that has a lot to do with growing up in the backside with grooms basically raised me. You know, You've always been outspoken about the, you know, the, the especially when it was really a hot topic. I know it always is, but with the visa stuff and and I would imagine that this is probably a, a big portion of why that was such a big deal for you. You're right. You're, the immigration issue is a big deal with me. And I see the cream of the crop of the immigrants. And people in this country don't realize how privileged they are just to be born here. You come and listen to some of the stories of the guys and the grooms and the girls that that work with me every day and you'll understand how bad it is for Baltimore, for instance, was 16 years old when he came across the border and had to sneak into this country. And if you drive, anybody that's ever driven from El Paso over to New Mexico 
and you look on the left-hand side of the Rio Grande and there's a fence up and the people are living in lean-tos on the side of a hill and you look on the right side and there's people living in mansions. And all it is is whether you're born 100 yards north or 100 yards south of how you're going to live. You would understand more about these people that are lined up at the border to come here for opportunity, not for crime, not to bring fentanyl, like they say on CNN or Fox, wherever you watch. They come here to provide for their families back home. And it is. That's why I've become passionate about immigration policies. Yeah, we could do things a lot better, but these are not animals and they're not all criminals that come here. There's a very small minority that are criminals that, it, that even want to come here. It's people that leave their families, their culture, where they are to come here to simply provide for their children at home. There's not one person that has come over here that's worked for me that wouldn't immediately turn around and get on a plane and go home if they could earn a living where they are and provide for their families. And it is a tough issue. It is. There's a balancing act in all of it. And and I've argued with politicians. I've been on Washington. I've been on Capitol Hill. Baltimore's wife was has been with us just as long. She works with Christina. Christina Bahima has been working with me since we were 20 years old. She walked across the desert for three days to get somewhere where she could get a, earn a living to provide for her family. And when I met her, she couldn't speak a word of English. And she would, every day, would come to me in tears. I got to get my babies. She left two children behind in Mexico. So one day she came and she said, I'm going back for them. She flew back across. She paid coyotes $5,000 so that she could be guided through. They call them the coyotes, the people that guide the immigrants across. They're worse than the Border Patrol. If you don't pay the coyotes, they will kill you and exhibit your body so everyone will know if you don't pay us, you're not getting across. Forget the immigration from the United States. Walked for three days with two babies, carrying them in water and some food. Got back to Kentucky. Both of those kids are college graduates and American citizens today. Had two more children. The last one's a senior in college today. The last one just graduated and is going to go to vet school. She became an American citizen, took their test, did everything she had to do. Mitch McConnell flew the flag over the United States Capitol in Christina Bohina's honor one day and mailed her the flag. You've never seen a more proud or happy person than the day Christina walked into my office at Churchill Downs and showed me the flag. And she is an American citizen. You know, I don't, I don't see how she could have quote unquote came over here the right way. The first time. It would have been impossible. It would have absolutely been impossible. And I mean, we could get political all you want. And we can sit here and talk about ways to change it and make it better. It, the United States people and the government have slaves south of the Mexican border that provide us with cheap avocados and cheap coffee, and we want to keep them down there and keep them. There, there's no doubt in my mind that we could go to all those countries and say, you have to have OSHA rules, you have to have minimum wages, you have to have child labor laws, and, or you can't do business with the United States. And everyone would stay where they are. But uh, that, that would cost us too much money. We'd have to pay $10 instead of 7 for a cup of coffee at Starbucks. 
So we've gotten way too political, Jonathan. Let's get back uh, to horse talk. I like it. I like it. No, that was a, it was a beautiful story, though. I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you told it. Let, let's talk about y- your family a little bit. You, you, you know, you get to work with three quarters of your family. It oh, probably every day. Uh, you know, Tammy obviously is. You know, probably gallops all your good horses and works your good horses, and then, and then Jake now as a, as a, as an agent, uh, let's start with Jake. I would imagine that you've got a lot of lessons to teach him and he probably picked up a lot along the way. Um, but tell me how your relationship is with Jake in, in, in terms of his career. But Jake's a double-edged sword. I mean, uh, Jake's a strong-minded young man and he's very good at what he does. And yeah, I taught, I think looking back, I've taught him so much stuff about horse racing and life. And a lot of times I didn't think he was picking up on it. And a lot of times he would rebel against it. But the older he gets and and the more things I hear and hear him say, the lessons I tried to teach him five years ago that he refused are the lessons he's telling me today. And uh, we get along very well. He's Like I say, he's my best friend. He's my son. He's my best friend. But it, sometimes it's a little hard because you can't always ride his jockeys and he doesn't seem to understand. He used to not seem to understand it. He told me this week when he was down here in Florida hanging out with me, he said, yeah, I've gotten over all that. I understand now. But it's really good. And, and, and he's gotten so good at it that he's helped me along the way about where to put horses and who we should win, ride where and where, who we should run. And it's been good. And then, of course, like you say, Tammy's on, she works all my best horses and there's nobody in the world better even at 58 years old at working a horse and giving an evaluation and working it the right way than Tammy Fox. And she's been a major benefit benefit to my career over the last 35 years since we've been together. And I can't imagine, I say when she's, when she can't work horses anymore, that's the time we just ride off into the sunset. Dale, I feel like you've got, compared to some trainers that are out there, I, I feel like you got a pretty good reputation for getting along with the riders. Um, oh. Where do you think that comes from? I, I, I hope I do. Well, you know, like I say, I grew up in the business and jockeys were some of my best friends. And uh, there was a kid, Tony Marino was one of my best friends. When I was 14, he was 16. He was a leading bug rider. I thought he hung the moon. And, uh, one of my, Scott Miller, we lived together on the road for 10 years, one of my very best friends. And I realized how difficult it is for these jockeys. If you think about what we're asking them to do and the athletic feat that goes along with being a jockey, I mean, they put three toes in those irons and they get into a squatted position and they're getting pelted by dirt going 35 miles an hour and they're 12 inches apart from one another. And we expect them to be able to judge pace, look for holes, and be in the right place all the time. And, and just the fact that they can get around there in that position, for, you know, people, they don't use their hands. It's all in their leg and their balance. They can put their arms out to their side and ride a horse if they keep going straight. It, it's an unbelievable athletic feat. And then on top of that, we tell them you can't eat. You got to be under 115 pounds. But we also want you out there at five o'clock in the morning to work horses to get them ready for the races. And I always thought the worst thing in horse racing has to be riding a horse that lost and walking back with the trainer and owner 
that have unrealistic ideas about their horse and explain to them what happened. If you could do it honestly all the time, it would be a great thing. And early on in my career, I figured out I'm not going to be that guy. I understand how hard it is for them. And I read an article as a kid one time that said everyone in the country can understand when they bet on a baseball game and the guy last batter up strikes out, they bet on a game. Or they can understand a guy turns around from the three-point line and misses. We all played baseball and basketball, but none of us rode racehorses. So it's hard to understand uh, that a, a jockey went too fast or went too slow or didn't find the hole or went wide. So I always told myself, I'm never going to be that guy. And one of the great reasons is when I was a young trainer, Pat Day, another one of my lifelong heroes, uh, he told me, he said, don't give me many instructions. He said, because he said, I don't know why, but when I go out there and ride with my gut, I feel like I'm a half a second in front of everyone else in the race. I said, I'll go for holes that aren't there and they open up. And it's something that your mind is calculating faster than you can. And if you will allow yourself to go with your gut, it'll happen. So I've never given a jockeys a lot of instructions and I've never given them a lot of grief after a race because I want them when they come and ride for me to be relaxed and understand they're not going to get yelled at and beat up afterwards. And I want you to ride with your gut. And I think in the long run of my 30 years to 35, maybe 40 now training horses that that's benefited me. And it really is a great lesson from Pat day. Dale, you, you've won a lot of big races, but being, you know, you've spent a lot of your time in Louisville at Churchill Downs. I mean, you, you, you train, if I'm not mistaken, out of the barn that your father had. Yeah, you know? that's, uh, that's true. My, the barn, my, my barn four at Churchill Downs is, had a Romans in it over 50 years. Uh, as a kid, that's where I played. That was my playground. And then when I separated from my father and went on my own, I went to barn five right next to him. And at 58, my father had a massive brain aneurysm and I was left with everything. And I had never made a major decision in my life of at least walking across the next barn and talking about it. And that's, uh, I put the stables together and barn four and five have been my barns ever since. Now, barn four and five and, and spending so much time there and we've talked about you kind of growing up there i mean i gotta ask you and i and i and look I, I i feel like it's it's there's one for you but how important is it for you to to to, to get a derby in your career i mean i always say that that would be the pinnacle of everything and every year i've had a horse in the derby which i think we've run 11 of them now that the reporters make a big deal about growing up three miles from Churchill Downs, being there my entire life. But I think the big derby is bigger than that. You think the derby is more important to me than it is Steve Asmussen. I don't care where you're born or raised. If you're in horse racing, you understand that's the pinnacle of the game. And I understand how hard it is to do it. I understand how big it would be to do it once. Can't imagine what it'd be like to do it seven times like Bob Baffert. 
but I always say it'd be like a kid growing up, always wanting to be an astronaut and one day stepping on the moon. That's how big it would be in my life. Which horse did you lead over there that you thought was your moon? Like what, what was the one that you thought I'm, I'm going to step on the moon today? Is there, is there one that sticks out or did you kind of feel that confident with a lot of them? Well, there's 20 guys in the Derby. And if you've gotten there, that means you've done a lot of things right. And your horse is very good. And your horses, you've made a lot of right decisions with that horse. So there's not one person walking over there that doesn't think they can win. And I've always felt like that. Probably the one I thought had the most chance was Shackelford. You know, he was just a horse doing the right things, doing it all, everything right. And uh, he came off the turn at the quarter pole on the lead. He made it all the way to the eighth pole on the weight lead. So I tell everybody, I know at least what it feels like to think you're going to win the Kentucky Derby. Didn't quite get there, but I thought I was going to for a minute. And, you know, his amount of quarter might just been a little bit out of his range. But that that's a good story that day, too, if you want to hear that one. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the Derby's a strange thing when you're a trainer. One of the big things, the first Derby I ran in, I wanted to watch my horse come out and listen to my old Kentucky home. Doesn't happen. You can't get from the paddock to where NBC wants you in time to hear the Kentucky, my old Kentucky home. I've never heard it when I had a horse in the race. But we get out there and they run. Of course, Animal Kingdom wins. Grand Motion is one of my good friends. Everyone's watching the horses come back. They're still out front. Well, we got to go downstairs and go back to work. Check your horse and see what's going on. So I come down and the first person I run into is Graham. And he's got tears in his eyes. He's going the wrong way. We had a moment. We hugged. I said, congratulations, buddy. I said, but you're going the wrong way. He says, well, this is your house. Take me where I need to go. And he grabbed my back of my sport coat. And by then, people start coming back into the back, and we're trying to get through the crowd. And I, we weave around. I get him down the, the back steps into the, the area where you go down to the Warner Circle. I said, now go get your horse, buddy. Congratulations. And uh, I thought that was a pretty cool moment in my life. The two of us, same age, friends a long time, lifelong friends from there on, for sure. And um, that, that was a good day. And two weeks later was a little bit better day when I turned the tables and beat him in the Preakness. Now, but was that, that day wasn't without event, right? I mean, didn't, it was a stressful, stressful situation. You, you, you know, you had, you had Patty and, uh, well, wait, Patty was a year before that, right? No, no, that was that Patty. Patty ran at Derby year before, and ran third. Okay, that's but right. when, we, when we go to Preakness, that was a very stressful day. So, Patty's coming off a long layoff. By far, also, Patty Prado does not get the credit for the great horse that he was. He's one of my all time greats. So, we run him back first time out in the Dixie, the race before the Preakness, and he wins. Go back to the barn. You walk back to the barn. It's an easy walk from at, at Pimlico from the, the racetrack, from the grandstand to the barn area for the Preakness horses. Go back. Patty's ready. We're starting to walk over. And my phone keeps ringing. But Donna Barton's doing the interview on the walk, another one of my good friends. And so I'm talking to her. Finally, I reach in my phone. I pull it out. And it's one of my assistants is in the test barn with Patty O'Prado. And they said, boss, we got a problem. 
he's limping over here. So, oh, hell. And there's only one thing that can make a horse be sound after a race run like that, get back to the barn limp. It means he cracked or broke his splint bone because it takes a little while sometimes for that. Tammy said, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? I didn't want to talk about it. Let's move on to the Preakness. And to get over there, and, and Shaq was a handful his whole life. He was just such a character. He's jumping through the air, sweating like a pig. I barely get the saddle on him. In the back of my mind, what's wrong with Patio Prado? He's he's all jumping around out on the turf course where we saddle. We're loading the gate. Somebody calls me. They said, the press says, they say it on TV, you can't win. He's too sweaty and hot. Da, da. Well, if Patty, if, if Shockford wasn't sweaty and hot, I'd be worried about it. Of course, and then he goes on and wins. And it just shows you the ups and downs of horse racing all within one day. How much stress is involved with us and the highs and lows of the game. We get back to Barn and Patty, he actually did crack his sesamoid and that was the end of his career. But he was safe and healthy and back in the stall. And I, I decided to be fortunate for what I had with him and not depressed about the fact he's not going forward. And Shaq had just won the Preakness, a classic race. I'm a classic winning trainer now. And after the Preakness, they have a big party right outside the barn. And Pimlico does a great job. I know you've been there. You understand how good it is, how much fun. They do everything. They bend over backwards to make sure that everyone in the horse industry enjoys that weekend. Well, there's a United States congressman that my daughter introduced me to there, Dennis Cardoza, which became a very good friend. He wants to pat, pet both of them. So I take him over to the stall, and he's petting on shock for the next thing you know, there must be a thousand people that are coming over there. And finally, I said, after about the eighth bourbon, anybody wants to pet him, pet him, pet him. But if he bites you, it's not my fault. They all pet and had, we had a wonderful night that night partying and having fun. What well, ended up with me and the bugler at the hotel bar <laughs> that night, the last two people standing and he still had his bugle. And I said, but I'm going up to the room. Three shots you can play me in my old Kentucky home on the way to the elevator. <laughs> and he whips out the bugle in the middle of the hotel down the street from Pimlico and plays my old Kentucky home as I walk to the to the lobby. I threw the lobby into the elevator. It was a night to remember. It's funny at that, at that pinnacle, right, where you've you've won the Preakness. Like you said, you're a classic winning trainer. You you, you know did. Did, did you ever think that moment was going to come true when you were in Florida sleeping on the turf course? No, that, that was never even a, a thought in my mind. It was never crossed my mind that I would. That's your brain. I don't know who told you that story. You've done your research. <laughs> how, yes. how, did you end up, how did you end up doing that? Sleeping on the turf course? Uh <laughs> Well, I was a good football player in high school to begin with. Let's get this started. And then my grades weren't good enough to get into college. And they wanted me to go to a prep school. And I said, that, that, uh, you think I'll get a lot smarter in prep school? That ain't going to work. I went to Beulah Park. So my father tried to force me back to college football and put me in a tack room at Beulah Park. And, and I'm so we didn't have any money anyway. He couldn't afford to get me anything else, but I was in a tack room that was leaking and they asphyxiated me from the heater. 
And I started thinking to myself, if I'm going to live in tack rooms, why be up here in the winter? And I got in a car and drove to Florida and I wanted to work for Woody Stevens. And, uh, I got down here and there, I couldn't find a job anywhere and I'm sleeping in my car and I got real sick because it was, it was all the moisture that would, so I started going out on the turf course of Hialeah after everything was done, it got dark and I would sleep under the bush in the turf course and I wake up all night worried about, I didn't want to wake up after the train had started and not be able to get across the track. <laughs> and so for the days that I couldn't uh, go out looking for a job until I got my job with Woody Stevens and he found me a tack room to live in. I just slept out on the turf course under the bush. It was warm. And, uh, finally I got a job with the legendary Woody Stevens, which was another childhood hero. And I spent the winter at Hialeah living in a little hut at the end of the barn with a couple of hot walkers and a basset hound named Cleo. And, uh, I say, I'll tell everybody that's the winter I became a man. Dale, what lessons that you learned from the old timers you were able to be around that you wish you could kind of, you could just kind of like were a prerequisite for everyone training horses, some of the newer trainers that show up here. What's one lesson that you've picked up from your time around those legends that you wish you could kind of, kind of instill in all these guys and gals that are training now? Well, one of the greatest men I've ever known in my life and another one of my childhood heroes that became a very, very close friend late in life was Alan Jerkins. And, uh, Alan, they end up putting us side by side over here at Gulfstream. And every afternoon I would show up for feed time and Alan would be there and we would get in a golf cart and we would circle our two barns and just talk. And I would pick his brain and pick his brain. So one day after the races, I was aggravated and I was whining and bitching and we'd had a bad day and Alan puts me in a cart and I'm talking about how much the game has changed and I don't like it anymore. It's not any fun. And Alan's driving around and, and he took me, I guess, to the furthest point we could go. And he said, listen, I'm 82 years old. I started training when I was 17. He said, the game started changing when I was 17, either change with it or get out. And he said, get out of my cart. He kicked me out of the cart left me and maybe walk back and think about it and that's truth that's life and if you go into today's time we're in the biggest change in the, in my lifetime in horse racing with hissa coming in all these things and and i've written some letters in support of let's work with hissa and it all goes back to alan either change with it and move forward or get out and you think about it alan is the perfect example of that he was winning races at 17 and at 84 when he died and you have to roll with the punches and change and just get better and keep improving and keep doing what you're doing. But another thing Alan told me one time, he said, you know, you're unorthodox of training. You have an unorthodox style. I watch it. I know he said, I've been unorthodox my whole life. They talk about the riders I ride, what I do. He said, don't cave in to the pressures of the press, which are now social media. Do it your way. Continue to do it your way. And don't let anybody influence you, and you'll be successful. Dale, you know, one of the things that stands out about you and the conversations we've had um, is that a lot of trainers, because that's, that's they, kind of the only thing they can see, they kind of have blinkers on, 
and there's, and everyone's guilty of it, owners and betters, but I, as a trainer, you really do recognize the importance of the owners and the importance of the betters. And I've always kind of wished that the industry uh, could have you in their ear a little bit more so we could try to figure out something that works a little bit better for everybody. You know, that, that comes from Alan also. Alan told me one day, and it makes all the sense in the world. He said, you know, there's two people that put money into this game and everyone else takes from it, the owner and the better. They put, they're the only ones that put money in. The rest of us are taking a little piece here and there, whether it be the racetrack, the veterinarian, the hot walker, the groom. So if you don't cater to those two groups, then there's no game. We have no game because there is no investment into the game. There's no money put into it. And you really have to, we really need to bend over backwards to make sure that anybody that invests into a racehorse enjoys the experience and gets treated with the utmost respect. And anyone who comes in and wagers their money leaves there having a good time, win, lose, or draw. We don't want anybody to overbet. We don't want anybody to overextend themselves. We want people to come and spend their entertainment money gambling on horses and leave there thinking they gotten their money's worth. And hopefully, you know, there's a lot of good people working on trying to get that right. I think it was overlooked for a long time. Dale, this is one of those situations where I've had people on here and I've been happy to have them once. And that's going to be the only time I'm, I, you got to be like a regular, we got to, we got to, we could go for another four hours, but I want to get you to the golf course. But I do want to ask you about one of your best horses in a, in a stallion uh, that's, that's really been so prominent for, for very consistently for a long time now. Tell me how Kitten's Joy ended up in your barn. Well, that's, that's a good story too. It, uh, I, would, I had just gotten a horse or two for Ken Ramsey and he came to the barn one morning at uh, Gulfstream and he said, I'm going to, he bought like 60 yearlings with this, you know, tr- measuring hearts and he was going to buy the Derby winner. And he told me, he said, if you go up and look at all my babies at three different farms in Ocala, you give me your list. I'm going to send Bill Mott and Wayne Lucas, and I'm going to divide them up between the three of you. And at the time, I mean, that was, that was next level stuff for me. Put my name with those two guys. I'm on the road to Ocala. Not quite as naive then. I was more naive than I am now. Neither one of them went. So I went to all three stables and I get to Bo Yates's place and he's got a bunch of them there and we're looking and there's this big, pretty black horse gallop. And I said, Bo, who is that? I need him. And he was a three-year-old. He said, the horse had a bow tendon uh, of Ken's. He's a three-year-old, though. I said, well, I love him. And I jumped in the car and I called Ken. I said, Ken, uh, I'm going to write up all my thoughts on the 60 babies you got. But that three-year-old training there, I really want him. And well, you sent him to me. It'd probably be a good idea to get him off the little track with that tendon. We'll take him down to Gulfstream and get him ready. He said, sure, you can have him because don't, we don't think he's going to make it back to the races. He said, did you stop by the coal barn and see the horses that are in the sale? I said, no, nah, nobody put that on my list. He said, well, this girl Kitty Cheeks has them. And I just happened to know Kitty. Not many people probably did in the game. And I happened to be right in front of her, her farm. So that's why I whip in here and she would happen to be there feeding with, there were five horses there that Ken was selling in the April sale with no guarantee, no reserve just to get rid of them Four walk out. They need to be gone. The fifth one walks out the one of the biggest, prettiest horses I've ever seen. 
Now he's got a crooked knee, but he's so pretty. He walked through it nice and clean. I jumped back in the car. I said, Ken, what about the El Prado Colt? Why are you selling? He said, well, everybody says he can't handle that crooked knee. I said, well, let me tell you something. Of every horse I've seen up here, that's your best one. Do me a favor and don't sell him. And he says, well, I'm getting too much grief about scratching horses from sales and people aren't buying them because of that. I'm running through the ring. He says, well, please put a big reserve on him. So he ran him through the April sale. He put a $100,000 reserve. A guy bids 95000 on him. And Ken is just hard-headed enough. When the guy came back afterwards, when the reserve wasn't attained and tried to buy him for 95, he wouldn't come down five and the guy wouldn't go up five. So he sends him to me. That was Kitten's Joy. The big black horse that I liked was Roses and May. They both came in at the same time. And so that trip to Ocala not only changed my life, but it changed the life of my entire family. And by far, the greatest horse I was ever around. I, I think he could do simple math, Kitten's Joy. And the two ended up in the, in the stall side by side with one another, their entire racing careers. And opposite as, as night and day. Rosa May was the most difficult horse to work with. He'd eat you alive. He wouldn't do anything right on the racetrack. He had bad feet. He had a tendon. He wanted to get out. He wanted to run off and took everything I had. And I, I could swear some days that Kitten's Joy would look over at him and say, what are you doing? Why do you act like that? <laughs> But then the other day, then I would stand there and I would stand and watch. I would go back to the barn at night and I would watch Kitten's Joy just walk around the stall. And it's like watching Fred Astaire. He just breathed different air than anything else or anybody else. And and absolutely, to this day, my all-time great. Dale, uh, this has been an absolute blast. I, I feel silly ending it, but I'm not. We're gonna we're gonna save it because well, I'm gonna get you Saratoga. We're going to do it in person. We'll do some video and, and we'll, I'll, I'll smoke a cigar with you. And that'll be our part two. Anything for you, Jonathan. There aren't many people I stay on the phone with for an hour and a half to talk before my golf game. But anything for you. We appreciate what you do for horse racing and keep it up, buddy. Hit it good. Thanks, bud. I told you it wasn't going to be long enough. That was a ton of fun. Uh, wow. Those are my favorite stories, like how horses ended up in barns and the roses in May and, and uh, Kitten's Joy. Kitten's Joy story are just like, you know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't draw it up. Um, I, look, I, I, there's, a lot, there's a list of people that I think that could really, at, at a management level, at a commissioner level, could really have a positive impact on our game. And uh, I know he's funny. And I know he's a character. And I know he might not look like that buttoned up politician. He doesn't look like and act like Roger Goodell uh, or Adam Silver. But, I mean, who do you like more? Who's got a better understanding of the game in all aspects? Who loves it more? Who lives it more uh, than my buddy Dale Roman? So uh, I hope you really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said, I promise you we're going to do a part two. Uh, I promise. And it'll be quick. We won't, you don't have to wait for it. It'll be this summer at Saratoga. It'll be with video and it will be, uh, it will be just as much fun as I hope you had for the last hour. I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing once again for uh, partnering with us on this podcast. 
uh, wouldn't be possible without them. Um, want to also uh, thank uh, everyone on the network, PTF, Drew, uh, the behind the scenes peeps. Appreciate you guys as well. And then all the other people that have shows. Uh, follow our network, follow, the, follow all the shows. Just go open up your podcast, open up Spotify, search all the shows, follow them all. And, uh, and uh, we'll, we'd appreciate that. Don't forget, we're on YouTube. Comment, um, subscribe on YouTube as well. Uh, the more that that happens, the easier it is for us to continue to create more content for you all to digest. I hope you enjoyed this show. I sure did. We'll see you next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk.